0: Generally, I have a great job, but there are some pitfalls. When you cover environmental issues in the state of New Hampshire, there's a conversation that is just inevitable. It happens with people I've just met, it happens with my most dear friends.
1: We're gathered to show our opposition to a project that is not necessary.
0: Eventually, People want to know what I think of the Northern Pass.
2: When I first learned about the Northern Pass, I was astounded.
0: I've been covering Northern Pass for six years. I've filed dozens of stories on it, done a three-part radio series about it. I talk on talk shows about it. It's a very big, very divisive issue in New Hampshire. People have bumper stickers on their cars and signs in their front yards about it. I mean, it even came up in a Republican primary debate. Mr. Trump, you have
3: said, quote, I love eminent domain.
0: The Northern Pass is a proposed piece of infrastructure. It's a power line, 240 miles long, that would stretch from southern Quebec to southern New Hampshire.
3: Here in New Hampshire, a project, though, known as the Northern Pass would bring hydroelectric power from Canada into the northeastern grid. Do you see eminent domain as an appropriate tool to get that project done? Well, well let me just
4: tell you about eminent domain, because almost all of these people
3: Much of the proposed route will
0: actually be buried along state roads or runs along existing smaller power lines, but a portion of it does not. And it's this new route, which would require the building of towers, mostly around 80 or 90 feet tall, and some as tall as 165 feet, and the path itself, which would cut through New Hampshire's northern forests, that has people worked up.
1: Northern Pass will ruin the natural beauty and cultural heritage of New Hampshire.
0: The power that would come down this line is from big hydroelectric facilities, rivers that have been dammed and diverted and are now being run through turbines. It's being pitched as clean, renewable energy, energy to replace all of the fossil fuel and nuclear power plants that are retiring all over New England. So people are split down the middle on it. The last poll on the Northern Pass project is a little old at this point, two years. But it found that 39% of people were opposed to it, 35% were in favor, and 25% didn't have an opinion. And so when this happens, when a friend or an acquaintance or a family member asks me about the Northern Pass, I want to run. It is a total minefield.
3: Governor Sununu, do the right thing
5: that you're supporting Northern Passy. Do the right thing.
0: But the debate, down here at least, has mostly been about the power line itself. The dams, the source of the electricity, are so far away. It's like they're not even real to the people here in New Hampshire. They're symbols on a map. They're pieces on a chessboard. And talking about this project, talking about the power line without talking about the electrons that would flow inside of it, it's a little bit like debating train tracks without ever talking about trains or having an argument about what's the best kind of sandwich without ever discussing what's inside. And let's just say there's a lot inside.
3: It's a big discrimination in Quebec against the First Nation. We know that. We live here. We feel it just by the way they look at us. You know, We feel it.
5: We're not perfect but we are working with the people, and we want to work with them. So I hope, with all the, the rest of the message, I hope you give this one. Uh, and that was bad back then. That was really bad, because all we did was fight, and we were really good at fighting. They tried to make a sweet deal with the, the news uh, to, to buy their rights for uh, basically uh, nothing. It was a, a, unconstitutional, illegal, totally illegal. This
0: is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown.
1: And I'm Hannah McCarthy.
0: For months, we have been working on this story.
1: We're calling it Powerline, a four-part series about who has power, who wields it, and when you've got none, how do you take it?
0: In this first episode, we're going back to the beginning. Where did this project come from? And where does it go?
1: What we found is that hydropower in Quebec is tied to a deep political history, one that stretches back decades and is inextricably tied with the reimagination of the French-Canadian identity.
0: And over the next few weeks, we'll tell you that history and how it continues to echo into the events of today, both north and south of the border. So, a little while ago, I took a trip down to Boston. Right downtown, the financial district, lots of fancy suits, fancy restaurants that hired musicians to serenade customers at lunch. And I headed up into a nice tall building right in the middle of this area and met with this really important guy.
3: Great. So Ian Bowles, uh, I'm an investor at Winsale Capital Group. Um, More relevant to this discussion, I I was uh, Massachusetts Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs from 2007 to 2011.
0: We're here talking to Ian because Ian held the reins when Massachusetts made a policy decision that might have kicked off the Northern Pass. There was a new law that had been passed. The state was going to try to cut their carbon emissions. But how much they had to cut was left flexible. It was left up to Ian. You got to set that target? Is that right?
3: Yeah, so legislation gave the secretary the ability to pick a number between 10% below and 25% below. Um, And uh, yeah, I set the 25% because we thought that was achievable.
1: A 25% cut in carbon emissions by 2020. That's not easy to do. And with just two more years to go, Massachusetts is doing pretty well. They've been ranked first in the nation in terms of their effort to increase energy efficiency for six years running now. There's 1,000 times more solar power in the Bay State than 10 years ago.
0: But despite all this, they're still a little shy of the goal. And that's because there's something missing from this ambitious plan.
3: You know, if you think of yourself as reducing by 25 percent, five of that 25 would be coming from, you know, kind of one additional major transmission line for Canadian uh, hydropower. And I mean, I think the plan contemplated um, something on the order of one big additional line.
1: One additional line. It wasn't long after this law was passed that Ian says he took a meeting with a representative from Hydro-Quebec, a massive provincially-owned electric company, one of the biggest hydropower companies in the world.
0: They wanted to discuss a project that they and an American partner had in mind. Want to guess what that proposed power line would come to be called? The Northern Pass.
1: In other words, Massachusetts can't hit its carbon goal without running a big, fat power line up to Canada they need that Canadian hydropower. More specifically, they need Hydro-Quebec.
0: So now, when I first heard of this project, my first question was, how is it that Quebec has just all sorts of extra hydropower just waiting around for us to use it? Those electrons have to come from somewhere.
1: And they do come from somewhere. Somewhere very far away.
0: For this story, we drove north.
1: So, how are you feeling, energy-wise?
0: Uh, running on caffeine definitely is like I'm. I'm at that stage where it's like, like on the verge of a crash, but not crashing yet.
1: Quebec is a massive province. We drove 20 hours north of New Hampshire, more than 1,000 miles.
0: So, okay, so general feelings. How big is Canada?
1: It. Like, you'd think that the scale would have, like, solidified or or something. Um, But it's only bigger than I could have imagined.
0: Not impressed? Okay, imagine where Montreal is. The first Hydro-Quebec Dam we're going to take you to is, in fact, a 16-hour drive north of Montreal.
1: Inside the Central Robert Bourassa, a massive dam complex that is way up in the middle of Quebec.
0: This facility is one of the biggest in the world. Together, its two powerhouses have 22 of these turbines and they put out more power than six nuclear reactors. So, if one of these can power a city, yes. um, then how much does the whole facility? You said it's.
5: Oh, that way, uh, this is the equivalent of. Uh, of a town of uh closely 1.6 million people i think that's a Uh, city that's a city right that's one yes it's a little bigger than our town you know in the red sun we're 280 people so uh, no problem we have quite enough with this uh, with this uh, machine
0: that was our tour guide by the way eric hamel
1: and can i just say hearing the sound doesn't really capture what it was like to stand beneath this turbine I kind of can't believe they let visitors get so close. Yeah, it seems
0: like a total liability.
1: There's this mass of metal, the rotor, which weighs 600 tons and is like the size of a pitcher's mound, spinning so fast that it's just this blur, and it generates this hot wind. Like, I'm talking about wind, not a breeze. And I just kept thinking that had to take a finger clean off.
0: And this whole project is like that. It's really hard to describe. The dam, the part that actually blocks the river, is almost two miles long. And that's just one of their dams.
1: This underground electricity bunker is the biggest one Hydro-Quebec owns. But it is not the only one. In total, they've got 62. They have got enough of these huge hydroelectric facilities to power all of Quebec.
0: And it comes at the cheapest rate of anywhere in North America. It's so cheap that 75% of Quebecers actually heat their homes with electricity, which in almost any other place would be insanely expensive.
1: And yes, they have some leftover for New England.
0: So how did this all get built? For starters, if you've never heard of Hydro-Quebec, don't feel too bad.
4: Okay. <laughs> Our opinion by Hydro-Quebec.
0: I spent an hour or so wandering around a park in Montreal just asking random people about the company. Yeah, I'll talk to you. What, uh, what do you want to hear, good things, bad things? And I'm generalizing here, but right away I noticed something a little unusual. Like most Americans I know, Montreal's English speakers didn't really give much thought about what makes their lights turn on.
4: The fact that you're asking me the question I'm thinking that it's something that I should have thought about. I, I, right.
0: To be honest with you, I don't know what hydropower is. To them, Hydro Quebec is the name at the top of their electric bill, like the water company or the sewer bill. They don't give it much thought. Uh, one thing I like about them is that in the winter, if you don't pay them, they don't cut your hydro off. No, they don't. Right? Because you might die, so they leave it all.
4: Woo! I sound stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, no,
0: man. no, but it's true. Like, you don't think about it, right? You no, I, I, I take it for granted. Francophones, on the other hand, the French speakers I spoke to, they had a different take.
4: quebec
0: <inaudible> He says that Hydro-Québec is a jewel.
1: Ah, mais la compagnie <inaudible> est très bien vue.
0: She says the company's very well regarded and that it's a matter of Quebecois pride.
1: And can we just say here, since when do people say nice things about their electric company? And people have been yelling at their electric bills forever.
0: What is going on here?
1: To get this, you've got to go back a little ways.
3: My name is Valérian Lambert, and I bone born in Quebec, Canada, Twin Junction, 1945.
0: Val Lambert is the father of a friend of mine. He came to the U.S. in the 60s and worked construction jobs.
3: When Val was
1: a kid, French Canadians were something of an economic underclass in Canada, though he seems to have a pretty good sense of humor about it.
3: On the farm, we have to pump the water. And in time, the water was freezing. We have to go get the water by bucket.
0: <laughs> Ever since France lost its colony to Britain in the French-Indian Wars, English speakers had held the reins of power, especially the economic power. French speakers had less education, held fewer high-level positions in government and industry, and got significantly less pay than Anglophones.
3: I stop I st- at six and a half grade <laughs> school. <laughs> yes, yeah. But the father would need some uh, kid to work on the farm.
1: But even though that didn't seem to bother Val, many French Canadians felt looked down upon by Anglophones. Oppressed, even.
0: Case in point, there's this whole genre of Canadian joke. They're called Jean-Guy and Pierre jokes. And basically the punchline of every single one of them is just that French Canadians are kind of dumb.
1: It's like a blonde joke or a Polish joke.
0: But it wasn't just jokes. There was actual historical policy that French Canadians could point to.
1: There was a report written by a colonial governor that called French Canadians a people without history or culture and recommended assimilating them.
0: In short, there is a long history of the Québécois feeling like they were being treated like a problem and generally discriminated against.
1: And, hey, they had a point. Just listen to this CBC report from 1966.
3: How do you think of French Canadians?
1: I don't mind them. It's
5: like I'm not um, prejudiced against Negroes either.
3: Do you speak French? No. Do you object when you hear people around you speaking French? Oh, no. No. Provide they're not talking to me.
0: French Canadians and their politicians were pretty sick of all this. And in the 60s, they set out to turn the tables.
1: We'll tell you all about that after a quick break.
0: By the time the 60s rolled around, the Québécois were sick of being the butt of Canada's jokes.
1: This reaction turned into something called the Quiet Revolution. And if you're from Quebec, you learn about this in, like, History 101 in
5: high school.
0: Yeah, but since we're not Quebecers, and probably most of you are not, we've got three teacherly types to help get you up to speed.
5: My name is uh, Dr. Dominique Perron. I, I, uh, I am a retired professor of, from University of Calgary.
2: My name is Caroline Debien and I am a professor at Laval University in the Department of Geography.
4: My name is Daniel Sarri. I'm a professor of political science uh, at Concordia University.
1: So, cast yourselves back to Quebec in the
5: 1950s.
4: What you have to understand is that anything that had to do with power, uh, electricity...
5: Forestry, mines, uh, factory, industries...
4: All this was owned by mm -hmm. either uh, American corporations or English corporations.
5: So, the Francophone was not part of those exploitations.
0: So... English speakers have most of the capital,
4: while French speakers were more likely to be doing the labor. There was a a kind of nationalist movement that sort of started up in the 1950s saying, you know, what is this?
2: But there's that sense of being decolonized.
4: We're a majority here.
2: Being relegated to the least desirable sectors. And
4: we we don't own the means of production. Uh, We're being exploited by uh, foreigners, Americans, or English Canadians, and things like that.
1: And educated French Canadians They started to get worked up about
5: this. A lot of young intellectuals in Quebec in the 60s borrowed a lot of their ideological discourse from the discourse of independence of the African colonies. there's,
2: There's a lot of racism there toward them.
0: French Canadians were a majority. So it was only really a matter of time before they'd start to get their people into government.
1: And this budding French nationalism eventually found a leader, Rene Levesque. In
5: 1962... Uh, with a new minister of uh, natural resources, René, René Lévesque.
4: Lévesque. René Lévesque, who will become later in the 1970s pr- premier of Quebec.
2: René Lévesque, who founded and led the Separatist Party in
5: the Parti Québécois. René Lévesque, a former journalist of Radio Canada.
1: Lévesque's first big idea for promoting francophones was hydropower. He got the idea
5: that maybe we should uh, f- start with buying all the little a hydroelectric uh, company in Quebec. In this
2: process that I guess people have referred to as decolonizing the energy
5: sector. Taking over our own economy and our own natural resources.
1: And Quebec has impressive natural resources, especially when it comes to water. It is the second largest province in Canada, and it contains 40% of all of Canada's hydropower potential.
0: This idea, buying the dams, It was big.
2: This is a sort of a foundational moment uh, for Quebec.
0: To this end, in an extremely unusual move, they called for snap elections very shortly after the previous election in 1962.
1: The sole purpose of this election, the politicians wanted a mandate. A mandate to buy up all of the country's existing hydropower companies and nationalize them into a single entity.
0: And to sell Quebecers on this idea they came up with a slogan.
2: It is the most recognizable campaign posters in in Quebec history. The motto was maître chez nous.
4: Masters in our own home.
2: That slogan, masters in our own house, it captured the spirit, it built momentum.
4: That is, we have to really, Uh, uh, get the ownership of our land.
2: You know, it's in
1: every textbook for kids who learn their history. This is like the Quebec equivalent of the Rosie the Riveter poster or the Uncle Sam I Want You poster. That poster is very much part of what we learn and teach our children.
0: The image is dramatic. It's an upheld fist clenching a bunch of lightning bolts. And this was the image that Quebecers had in mind when they went to the polls in that snap election. Uh,
5: it was not a landslide vote. They win, but uh, they win not by a big majority.
1: It was big enough though, 56% to 43. And with that vote, the modern Hydro-Quebec the province-wide monopoly, was born.
0: And while they might not have realized it until later, this was the beginning of a new era in Quebec history, one in which French was declared an official language of Canada. And remember René Levesque? If his name was familiar to you, it's because after he helped create Hydro-Quebec, he went on to start a brand-new political party based on the idea of turning Quebec into its own country— the Parti Québécois.
4: That's part of what is called the quiet revolution because it was a revolution because it starts to shift in the dynamics of power.
5: Before the nationalization, my own father worked most of his life for Hydro-Québec. So at the time it was 2021 20, and not obviously very educated.
1: He was a French speaker, but the foreman at the worksites gave instructions for how to use things like dynamite.
5: In English, they didn't understand, of course, and uh, many young men uh, explode themselves because they didn't uh, understand the instruction in English.
1: But after the Quiet Revolution, the first projects that Hydro-Québec built, they were built in French.
4: When I was a kid in the 1960s, uh, they were building uh, the Manicouagan Dam. I can remember. <laughs> that it was something really to be proud of. Because we here in Quebec, the little French Canadians who were, you know, just a generation before, were hardly able to amount to anything economically, we were building those huge dams.
5: A very quick change in the society of
2: Quebec. And uh, people will say with great pride, and this is also written all over the history books, that, um, you know, must have been the first time in Quebec where uh, a large uh, chantier like that, work site like that, where, where you could hear French everywhere. It's,
4: it's extremely important. It's, it's important for, of course, for what it achieved, but it's symbolically important as well. Because for us, Hydro-Québec is, is a very powerful symbol. I mean, if you dismantle Hydro-Québec, it would be like dismantling us.
1: And this is probably why, if you ask a French speaker in the streets of Montreal about Hydro-Québec, they might just tell
4: you that it's a jewel. I think it's a joyous thing we have, Hydro-Québec.
1: A matter of Québécois pride. Oui, c'est une fierté québécoise, quand même.
0: Today, Hydro-Quebec is huge, nearly 20,000 employees, Canada's biggest utility.
4: So uh, first of all, be be welcomed here at the Hydro-Quebec Research Institute. So uh, my, my name is Jean-Pierre Tardif, so I'll be uh, your guide for most of the uh, And
0: when I visited last summer, they took me on a tour of their research institute, a set of super fancy labs where they invent stuff, mostly robots it seems.
4: So this is a robotized platform that we use to inspect... uh power lines.
0: They have one called the line scout that like rolls along high voltage lines, inspecting them and x-raying them so they can make repairs. Uh, And there's another adorably nicknamed scompy that can climb inside turbines to do repairs.
4: Brave little robot. So with the robot, we don't have to take out the turbine runner. We just dry it. And the rubber is so compact that it can weld in between the blades.
0: They also employ one of the world's foremost experts on battery chemistry, Karim Zagib. And they're rolling out batteries on various spots on their grid. We are looking also in future worldwide what we can implement this technology. Like in China, India, and Africa, and especially China, you know that you have a lot of pollutions. And hydropower it does produce some of the lowest greenhouse gas emissions of any generating technology.
1: When a dam is created, land is flooded, and the sunken plants and soil organisms start to die off and give off carbon and methane. But after around a decade, those emissions stabilize, and the reservoirs don't emit any more than a natural lake.
0: Cumulatively, over the 50, 80, or 100-year lifespan of a project, hydro dams actually give off less carbon than solar power.
1: In short, Hydro-Quebec is a big, modern utility, one of the world's biggest. And remember, it's owned by the province. It's called a Crown Corporation. And that's been a pretty good deal for Quebecers.
4: Uh, I would have to look at the uh, the uh, the figures, but um, it's a cash cow.
0: Last year, the company paid the government about $4 billion dollars. Some of that was just taxes and stuff that any utility would pay.
1: But more than half came in the form of a dividend. That's money that if Hydro-Quebec were still a private company, would be going to private shareholders instead of into the
4: government coffers. It has been a cash cow. It still is to a certain extent. So obviously uh, we need it. We need it. Yeah.
0: And a lot of that cash comes from the Northeast. Hydro-Quebec already sells a lot of electricity to New England and New York through some power lines built decades ago.
1: In fact, exports are so lucrative, they're an explicit strategy. They sell 16% of their electricity outside their borders, but that gets them 28% of their revenue.
0: They're in this unique position of having the cheapest electricity in North America and being right next to the northeast of the U.S., which has the most expensive electricity in the contiguous U.S., It's like being that one state with no sales tax in the middle of a bunch of other states with really high sales taxes. The
1: history, the low cost, the revenue for the government, the engineering prowess, it's all on display up there, proudly, out in the open.
4: It took 2,255,000 meters cube of concrete to build a dam. To give you an idea, with all this concrete, we could build a sidewalk. That would go from the South Pole of the Earth to the North Pole.
1: This is our tour guide, James, from another dam tour that we did. This one is the Manique Five, which is this huge concrete thing. It's 700 feet tall. Fun fact, this is the largest arch and buttress dam in the world.
0: And these dams are totally a tourist attraction, kind of like the Hoover Dam, which is why we were able to go inside.
4: So we'll make an echo test. We'll all come here. I'll count to three, one, two, three.
0: And take and a fun, Atlantic, family-friendly as as tour.
4: One, two,
5: three. Madi! I'm not going to be here, but I'm to But there are costs
1: to hydropower. And up in Quebec, when the French Canadians were working on their project of seizing the economic power from the English speakers, there was another group, with even less power, who would wind up bearing the brunt
5: of this push. A company this
0: big, over a period this long, of course there's been conflict. Of course the narrative of how we should feel about them is a contested one.
5: What they have done was, uh, first of all, immoral, and two, it was uh, uh, unconstitutional, illegal, totally illegal.
2: We. We deployed the same arsenal that we were rebelling against. Those words that were sort of the spearhead of the quiet revolution, masters in our own house, were pronounced on Inu territory.
5: They tried to make a sweet deal with the, the Inus uh, to, to buy their rights for uh, basically uh, nothing.
2: The Quebecois themselves, in their process of becoming masters in their own house, were dispossessing. Uh, Indigenous peoples of their own house.
1: Like we said at the beginning, today is the first of a four-part series about New England's decision to bind itself even more tightly to Canadian hydropower. Next week, we're going to hear about the people who pushed back against Hydro-Québec's projects.
0: Because when the Québécois started to build their huge hydroelectric dams, they weren't building on a blank slate. There were tens of thousands of people who already lived on these water bodies. And in the early days, nobody asked them what they thought about these projects. That's next week on Outside In. outside in was produced this week by me sam evans brown
1: and me hannah mccarthy with help from taylor quimby jimmy gutierrez ben henry nick Cappadice, lauren chulgin and maureen mcmurray
0: And let me really encourage you to head to OutsideInRadio.org. There is a lot there for this series. Because there's a lot in these stories that's really hard to comprehend unless you see it.
1: Like dams so big that we had to fly over them just to get the whole thing in frame. And maps showing you just how many of these things dot Quebec's landscape and how much power they produce. Oh, and beaver meat. Lots of beaver meat. (laughs)
0: Music from this week's episode came to us from Pottington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Komiku.
1: Our fancy new theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder.
0: Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.